Here our theme is crossing over. And in uh, crossing over, we know that it is not just about the physical moving into the new building, but spiritually preparing ourselves for the new phase of ministry God has called us to. But in many ways, this ministry isn't new. It's uh, something that we are continuing because God called this church to be a church for Queenstown. And so we continue with that mission, but we are called to consecrate ourselves. In other words, prepare ourselves for the task ahead, but also then to look to God for how He would direct us, how He leads us, and, and listen to His voice and His clear call. But once we hear it, to then act and believe. These are the um, um, themes that we are looking at through this year of 2021, what we are preparing ourselves for, even in this uh, time of COVID. And I've entitled today's sermon, What's Love Got to Do With It? It's um, obviously, we know that in crossing over, love is ultimately the key. And what has love got to do with it is basically, you know, a, a song in the 80s. You all know <laughs> Tina Turner's hit song. Those of us of a certain vintage, we are familiar with this song. And um, in, in a way, if you actually look at the lyrics of the song, it's fairly cynical about love. You know, and it's basically saying love is a secondhand emotion. You know, who needs a heart when a heart can be broken? But I believe, you know, that uh, is because it's the wrong view of love. And what we want to look at in this passage is what true love is and what love uh, um, God calls us to and has uh, brought into our midst. In some ways, I'm picking up where uh, Elliot left off. Last week, he preached from uh, 1 John chapter 3. And I want to continue to look at this uh, topic and theme of love. But the first and foremost, I want us to see that in the way it's talked about and in any case uh, throughout Scripture, we see that love is a law or uh, uh, the law of love in that sense. In the very last verse of this uh, passage, in verse 21, it says, And He has given us this command, anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. That the, the law of love calls us to love our brothers and our sisters in Christ, first and foremost. You know, this whole passage, in fact, uh, is the constant refrain that we ought to have this love. But, you know, setting it up in verse 20, um, uh, the Apostle John says, Whoever claims to love God and yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. And so we see this call to love one another is a law that the Lord... Uh, <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> As the Lord puts upon us and a demand made of us. In fact, it's called a commandment, right? The great commandment tells us love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And later on in uh, John 13, he reiterated a new commandment I give you love one another as I have loved you. And so we see these commandments uh, in this passage as well. In verse 7, Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Verse 11, Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes... Oh, oops, it's not moving yet. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love 
one another. And finally, in verse 12, he reiterates it in a, in a way in which he's making a, a hypothesis. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. I want to ask you a very simple question. How are you keeping up with this law of love? Are you acting on it 100%? Are you keeping it fully? I think if we are honest, we struggle. I struggle. You know, maybe not you guys. You guys are more loving than I am. But sometimes I, I, I lose my patience with brothers and sisters in Christ. With those whom God has called me to love. And I must admit, I'm not there. And this is the nature of the law, isn't that right? That we find ourselves failing often to live up to that which we are called. And if there's any doubt, you know, uh, last week we saw in chapter 3 verse 17, if anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? That's a sobering word if we really stop and we think about it. But sometimes we hear all these things and it washes over us because we uh, um, make it less than what it's calling us to. Oh, I've given some of my possessions. You know, I've helped one person or two. But the reality is there are so many more who have needs, which I have the possibility to help them in their needs. And yet I close my heart off to them. It's really interesting as I was preparing for this, I came across a book and uh, as I want to do, I nowadays, uh, especially because you can buy books uh, on Kindle, <laughs> it's very easy. You don't even have to wait for it to arrive. Uh, it's fascinating. It's written uh, by uh, Michael Sandel, who is uh, a professor of government in Harvard and um, uh, is actually a, a political philosopher. It's not a, a Christian book, although there are Christian content in it. But in it, he's asking the question as to what is wrong with America today. And uh, he believes that the big problem is this problem of meritocracy. And he sees the populist backs, uh, uh, backs, backlash, which has happened not only in America, but a lot of countries around the world, you know, which uh, swept a person like Trump into power. And although he lost, he just barely lost this last election, right? Uh, it's because of a revolt against the tyranny of merit. You all know about the American dream. Yes, no, maybe. The American dream says that you know it's founded upon meritocracy. When the new world was founded, they wanted to get away from the old world where everything was built upon a, a privileged class. You know, if you're born into the right family, you rose to the top. They wanted in this new world that everyone should have the ability to rise to the top. And so America as a country was built upon immigrants, people who came to their shores hoping to find a better life. And, you know, the, the, the understanding of meritocracy is basically this. You get what you deserve. Everyone has an opportunity to rise to the top. If you do the right thing, you will get the right result. It's a cause and effect sort of thinking. And we in Singapore here are familiar with it because isn't it true that's the Singaporean dream too? That's how our nation was founded, on the um, hard work of immigrants who came to this land, 
years ago, many of them our ancestors who arrived, you know, looking for a better life, seeking to advance themselves, to work hard, to rise to the top. And in our particular society, one of the ways we see that happening is through education. And why education has become such an important uh, um, uh, aspect of life, right? Our, our lives uh, revolve around it. We, we, we find ourselves ordering everything we do to make sure that our education uh, um, um, reaches the pinnacle. And, you know, we sometimes even make education our end, so much so that the end justifies the means. Whatever it takes to get there, to get the degree, to get the recognition, you know, we do anything to reach our goal. And if we don't make it, then we make sure that our children do. <laughs> right? We live vicariously through them to make sure that they succeed because we don't want them to have to go through what we have gone through because we haven't reached the top. But there is a problem with meritocracy, and that's the whole premise of this book. The problem is this, that the more we think of ourselves as self-made, as self-sufficient, the harder it is to learn gratitude and to learn humility. Right? We find, and, and uh, Sandal points out, actually it's not tied to any party. Both parties in the American context, because he, he's a political scientist, you know, he, he points out both the Republican and the uh, Democrats are equally tied to this idea of uh, pursuing meritocracy. And it affects both liberals and conservatives. You know how we see it happen? And we certainly see it happen here in Singapore. Certain jobs seem more valuable than others. Certain forms of education are to be valued above others. Right? What happens when results come out? We're not unhappy with the results in and of themselves sometimes. What we're unhappy with is the results tell us which school we can go to or what course of education we can pursue. When we feel like some other course was what we need to attain, you know, that, that dream, the Singaporean dream, to rise to the top in terms of meritocracy. And, you know, the reality is this, without these sentiments of gratitude and humility, it's very hard for us to look out for the common good, to look out for the needs of others. This morning, in fact, I came across on, on Twitter, uh, Twitter feed a letter, which, um, uh, Daniel, if you can help me show this letter, it was uh, a letter written by a woman who was retiring from a job as a cleaner in a bank. Uh, this is in the UK. It's not from here in Singapore. Okay, And she says, Ladies, tomorrow I will be my last clean for HSBC. I've made up a bucket of uh, cleaning materials for the next cleaner, whoever that may be. I've left the job, uh, Julie, after the way you dressed me down in the office. Uh, it was nothing more... Uh, than aggressive and cruel, but that's a reflection of your character, not mine. This is obviously one of the managers in that bank. <laughs> Publicly shamed, right? So going forward, please all of you remember, in a world when you can be anything, be kind. Because you are all no better than the cleaner. And you know, Although it happened in the UK, 
this could well be a letter, maybe with different grammar or different language, written right here in Singapore, isn't it? And we maybe point our fingers at other people. Yeah, that person in the office is so terrible, but are we any better? Do we treat our cleaners any better? And why do we think of them in that way? It's because many of us, all of us, if we are honest, are infected with this thinking, you know, that I deserve what I have. And because of that, you also, by uh, design, deserve what you have. This writer, uh, Sandal, also quotes a famous um, um, social scientist, Max Weber, who you know, lived and uh, um, uh, operated in the first part of the last century. Max Weber says this, The fortunate person is seldom satisfied with the fact of being fortunate. Beyond this, he needs to know that he has a right to his good fortune. He wants to be convinced that he deserves it. And above all, that he deserves it in comparison with others. He wishes to be allowed the belief that the less fortunate also merely experience their due. And the problem with meritocracy is that we often fail to see what we have is really ultimately a gift. That in reality... What we have, you know, where, where we may enjoy a certain level of wealth, certain level of success, may have come to us because we happen to be born into the right family. <laughs> you know, maybe we struck the genetic lottery as it is. Our parents, highly intelligent, you know, we end up being intelligent because they've passed on those genes to us. And so we do well. Or because they had the means they could send me for you know, uh, um, um, studies overseas or send me for all the uh, enrichment classes that helped me get ahead. That a lot of these things... Now, I'm not saying this to shame anybody. You know, this is the reality of life. That a lot of what we have comes as a gift. It's not something we absolutely deserved. Yes, there was hard work that was put in. Make no mistake about it. I, I'm not denying that fact. But there are people who don't have the same kind of opportunities we have. Think about it. All of us in this room, you're here because you happen now to be living in Singapore. <laughs> Which I, I know some people say, Suela, they shouldn't have said Singapore, the best country in the world for COVID. Then next thing you know, we got this spike. <laughs> but the reality is this, right? We could have been uh, born anywhere else. Our ancestors, instead of the boat stopping in Singapore, could have stopped, you know, a bit further down in one of the other islands around us or stopped in the peninsula above us where they are suffering far more in the midst of what uh, we are going through in this global pandemic. You get what I mean? That a lot of what we have is ultimately a gift. It is not something we earned for ourselves. Yes, we enjoy the fruits of the labor of others who have gone before us. But even that is ultimately a gift to us. And we forget sometimes because of meritocracy. Now, I'm not by any means saying we should come up with something else altogether and then you know, proclaim equality. And in fact, if you read this book and you find the time to, to go through it, I don't necessarily agree with all his conclusions. But it caused me to stop and think because as we look at the law, the law basically tells us 
that all of us fall short. That, you know, many of us love the lost, uh, or our love for the lost is insufficient, rather. And many of us, if we are honest, even as Christians, you know, when we see the plight of the disadvantage, we may, you know, send a few dollars their way. But we're not willing to take the time and trouble to really see what we can do to solve the problem, the real problem. It's easier just to send a, a, a few dollars because it takes less investment on my part. You know? And, and, and I'm not saying don't give <laughs> towards these causes. That's not what I'm saying. What I am asking is, why do we close our hearts to them? Could it be sometimes we think they deserve it and I deserve what I have? Romans tells us that ultimately the end of the law points us to this reality. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his or her own sight. Or be justified in his sight, meaning God's sight. Works of the law, no human will be justified in God's sight. Since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. The law confronts us with our reality. It points out how we fall short. Right? A few verses down is that famous verse, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. God, forgive us our falling shorts. <laughs> the ways in which we don't live up to not just God's standards, sometimes and oftentimes even our own standards, we fail. But where does this leave us? It could leave us in despair. Maybe it leaves us in self-disgust or possibly in fear. But you know, that's not the end of the word of God. In, later on in Romans 10, verse 4, we are told, For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. And in some sense, it means that you know, Christ ends the law. But in reality, if you look at the word in the Greek, and I know it's still something that which is debated, but I believe it means that Christ is the teleos of the law. That's the word in the Greek. It means it is the, 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 the final point to which the law points. That the law ultimately leads us to Jesus because it disabuses us of our thinking that we can save ourselves that we can justify ourselves, that we can be good enough or smart enough or hardworking enough to deserve anything. But ultimately, we need help from outside ourselves. We need a saviour. And that's precisely what I believe the Apostle John is pointing to. From verses 13, he goes on to say this, By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. You know, that our assurance is the fact that God has placed His Holy Spirit in us. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in Him and He in God. That those of us who sit here and we are called by the name of Christ as Christians, that we have made that confession of faith, we can only do that because the Holy Spirit of God dwells in us and has enabled us to do that. And it assures us of our uh, place with Him, that we do abide in Him. And by this we know that we abide in Him and He in us. Oops. Sorry, yeah. 
wrong <laughs> looking at the wrong verse uh, where my next yeah so we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us God is love and whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him by this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment because as he is so also are we in this world that the, 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 he who began a good work in us will be faithful to complete it, is basically what the Apostle John is saying. That, you know, as he has saved us, he continues to work in us. And we uh, need to believe that and cling to that, despite the fact we fall short. And this is the clincher, it says here in verse 16, oh, sorry, verse 19, 18. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. But perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. Who is perfect love? It's not just what, but who. It's Jesus, isn't it? He is perfect love. He is the uh, personification of love. He is love. God is love. That, you know, it is, everything that God does is loving. And we can only know love by looking at who God is and what He has done for us, by looking at Jesus. And ultimately, this verse we know because this was our camp theme some years back, you remember, in, in, in Malacca. We love because He first loved us. That our love comes not because we deserve it. It's beyond deserving. We didn't deserve what we have received in terms of His love. But when we begin to recognize that, when we begin to live into that, when we begin to uh, 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 recognize how much God loves us, how can our hearts not be moved? So where does this leave us? What must we do? You know, when the law points out our falling short, what we do is we come before God and we repent. We come before Him and we say to God, God, forgive me for my lack of love. Forgive me for the fact that I do not love my brother as I ought. That my love is less than perfect. That I've not... And also, you know, in that repentance, the other thing we need to repent of is the rec and recognize is that we haven't really fully understood his great love for us. I know most of us, if not all of us sitting in this room, know this already. You know, certainly I do. I preach it all the time. How much God's love uh, is for us. Unconditional. Unmerited. Undeserved. I know it. But I know at times I really don't know it because it hasn't issued forth in my love for others. And I come before Him all the time to repent and then say, God, I'm sorry I haven't failed to see that everything I have is a gift from You. It's not something that I have deserved or earned. And so then I consecrate myself. But in repentance, it's not enough just to have a change of heart or attitude. We need to return. You know that word metanoia means a 180 degree turn change our orientation. We return to our first love. We return 
to learning to love God with our heart, our soul, our mind, our strength. Learn to put ourselves in a place where we hear His voice once again. And ultimately, I hope and pray that as we do that, we begin to recognize everything that we have comes as a gift from Him. That on the one hand, it fills our hearts with gratitude. But then on the other, recognizing that it's a gift, we become a people of humility. That we are no better than anyone else out there. We are sinners saved by grace. And as God has extended that grace to us, that we in return extend the grace to others. That we begin to treat people differently because we see that we are actually no better than them, no matter what our education level is, no matter what our career might be, career path might be, no matter how successful we may be in the eyes of the world, that every one of us is a sinner that is in desperate need of grace. You know, I hope in the weeks ahead, in the months ahead, in the years ahead, as we continue to cross over into that which God is calling us to, that we will all find opportunities to serve. All find opportunities to give of ourselves, not just of our money, but of our time, of our gifts, of our talents, to serve. And there are a myriad of ministries within. I thank God for so many of you who've stepped forward. You know, since we've moved into the building, we've had all kinds of training classes, and so many of you have gone through all those uh, training uh, opportunities to equip yourselves to find a way to minister within the church. But there are many opportunities to minister without. You know, and I, I've got one that's coming up soon. Uh, I'll talk about it maybe next week. Uh, an opportunity to serve uh, the community in a, a different sort of way, not type of ministry you've normally had. Um, I better not say it because I need to clear it through <laughs> a staff meeting and uh, with Vicar first. But you know there will be opportunities for us to serve in in days coming up. I know, for example, there are still plans. You know, <laughs> we pray a lot that we will get this infection under control, and hopefully by uh, year end we will have our Christmas in Queenstown once again. You know, I'm so looking forward to it. I think it's a wonderful opportunity to serve the community. But, you know, if not that, what other uh, uh, opportunities that the Lord may bring our way? And maybe God's already given you some ideas. You know, be willing to step forward and to, to share with others and, you know, rally people around. Come speak to me. I will definitely be more than willing to hear and hopefully find a way to support you. My heart's cry, my heart's prayer is that as we go, we go forward with a heart of love. But a love that is not generate, self-generated, you know, it's not something that we can force ourselves to do. But a love that comes in response to that great love that we have received. We love because He first loved us. Let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. And I'm going to use today's collect, uh, one of my favorite collects, in our Anglican service book because I think it expresses exactly what we need. Almighty God, who alone can bring order to the unruly wills and passions of sinful people, give us grace to love what you command and to desire what you promise, 
that in all the changes and chances of this world, our hearts may surely there be fixed, where lasting joys are to be found, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. We're now going to...